Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country as part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Cardionerds, we are back with another case. Super excited to learn from our colleagues at Boston University Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. Incredibly thrilled to have joining us today, Drs. Anshul Srivastava, Dr. Yulia Mintz, and Dr. Michelle Ibrahim. Folks, welcome to the show. Can't wait to dive in. But first, tell us who you are. Hey, everyone. My name is Anshul Srivastava, a third-year general cardiology fellow here at Boston Medical Center. I was born and raised in Cincinnati before making my way to Boston, where I then did my internal medicine residency at BMC. I loved it so much that I decided to stay here for fellowship. When I'm not nerding out about cardiology, and specifically lipid-lowering therapies, hashtag resuvastatin, I love to check out all the awesome breweries and restaurants that we have here in New England. Hi, guys. My name is Julia Mintz, and I'm a second-year general fellow. I completed my internal medicine and chief residency at Boston Medical Center and stayed here for fellowship. Some of my favorite things to do in Boston are activities with my family, such as visiting the aquarium or the zoo or taking walks along the Esplanade. Hey there. My name is Michel Ibrahim. I'm a third-year fellow. I'm originally from Syria, born and raised in Port Prince, Haiti. I did my medical school in the Dominican Republic. I completed my internal medicine training at the University of Miami and before bringing my talents to Boston for my cardiology fellowship. I have an interest in heart failure and global cardiovascular health, and I'm currently applying for an advanced heart failure transplant fellowship. Anshul, Yulia, Michelle, oh my God, this is already amazing. The chemistry here is fantastic. And uh, hashtag Resuvastatin, you had me there. Oh my gosh. Let me get composed over here and ask you guys to take us to Boston. We've already said how much we love the city in previous episodes, but I want your view of Boston. Take us to your view of Boston and what makes you excited about the city, and then take us to your favorite place so we can talk some serious cardiology. All right, guys. Welcome, everyone, to Boston, where we are coming to you live and direct from the historical Fenway Park, home of our beloved Red Sox. That's awesome. You guys came prepared for this. This is great. And this is just perfect. Let's go to Fenway. Let's enjoy a game and do what we love doing when we're hanging out at Fenway Park. Let's talk some cardiology. And and just before we get started, I just have to say that you guys are just like 
the picture of cardiology. You know, as we are doing more and more of these episodes with groups from different programs, we're just so appreciative of the diversity within the field because the individual differences between us makes us all stronger. And so I enjoyed hearing your different backgrounds and really excited to dive in. So let's hear your case. Yeah. If we're having hot dogs, I just have to warn you because I know the case is going to be really exciting. There's going to be like mustard all over my lap at the end. So we should definitely carry on, but that's a disclaimer. Well, don't worry. Michelle's already three hot dogs deep. <laughs> Can't talk right now. <laughs> Hashtag Rasuvastatin. <laughs> All right, let's get going. All right. You know, we're here at Fenway Park on this beautiful Sunday morning. We're on top of the green monster where we come to discuss all of our interesting cardiology cases. Don't worry, we won't be singing Sweet Caroline in the middle of the seventh inning, but we'll try to keep it as on topic as possible. Yulia, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Anshul. So let's get started. We have a 66-year-old female with a known history of neuroendocrine tumor who's referred to our cardiac oncology clinic for subacute shortness of breath. She states that six months ago, she started to have dyspnea when she was walking up one flight of stairs. She says that previously, she used to climb stairs in the parking garage just for exercise while waiting for appointments. She denies chest pain or discomfort, lower extremity edema, orthopnea, or bendopnea. Whoa, that is a pretty significant change of functional sense. But wait a second, bendopnea? What is that again? Oh yeah, that's something that happens whenever you're trying to tie your shoe, Ancho. I'm just kidding, you don't have heart failure. Bendopnea is actually a sign for heart failure where patients with volume overload get more short of breath when they bend over to do things like tie their shoe. It's due to an increase in the thoracic pressures during bending and further increase in already elevated ventricular filling pressures. It's a great clinical finding that I've been using a lot with my heart failure patients. Thanks so much, Michelle, for explaining that to me. That's a great thing I'm going to incorporate into my clinical exam for all my heart failure patients. I can't wait to hear more about this case. Thanks, guys. So back to our patient who continues to have ongoing dyspnea on exertion. Her past medical history is notable for hypothyroidism and neuroendocrine tumor. Her past surgical history is notable for tonsillectomy and robotic ileocecectomy. Her allergies include a rash to contrast dye and gadolinium. Her current medications are diphenhydramine, prednisone, lopiramide, telorotristat ethyl, and levothyroxine. It seems like she's had a pretty extensive history of neuroendocrine tumor. Julia, can you expound on that a little bit more? Her carcinoid tumor was diagnosed in 2016 when she presented with a small bowel obstruction. At that time, CT abdomen and pelvis showed thickening of the bowel and masses in the liver. She underwent a partial bowel resection and biopsy of the liver lesions, which confirmed a neuroendocrine tumor. Oh, wow, Julia. Hold on a second. Neuroendocrine tumors? This is a classic history. They are indeed tumors that often originate in GI tract that may or may not cause small bowel obstruction. They secrete vasoactive substances such as serotonin that are subsequently taken up by the portal vein to the liver where they are metabolized into an inactive form. However, you can have liver metastasis, which are then able to secrete these compounds directly into the IVC and bypass the liver metabolism entirely. You can imagine that having a bunch of serotonin and vasoactive substances floating around is not ideal. This is when you start getting the classic carcinoid syndrome, which includes symptoms such flushing, hypotension, diarrhea, bronchospasm, or wheezing. It is around the time that you get carcinoid syndrome when these tumors are usually diagnosed, because otherwise they're pretty slow growing and you might not notice them. Thanks, Michelle, for that brief overview of neuroendocrine tumors. So many knowledge bombs right now. Now back to our patient. On exam, she appears well. Her vitals show a blood pressure of 122 over 82. 
heart rate of 77 beats per minute, and oxygen saturation of 96% on room air. Her exam is notable for lungs that are clear to auscultation. Heart rate is regular with a 3 out of 6 holosystolic murmur at the left sternal border that increases with inspiration. Jugular venous pressure is 10 centimeters of water with positive hepatojugular reflux. Her abdomen is soft and non-tender with no ascites, and there's no lower extremity edema. Her labs are notable for an unremarkable, complete blood count and basic metabolic panel. Her NT Pro BNP is 270, and a 24-hour urinary 5-hydroxyindolacetic acid, also known as 5-HIAA, is 212 milligrams, and the normal is less than 6 in 24 hours. Her EKG shows a normal sinus rhythm with right atrial enlargement and normal axis, and no ischemic changes noted. The chest x-ray was clear with no abnormalities. So, Angel, what's on your differential at this point? Thanks, Yulia, so much for that great presentation. There's just so much to take into consideration with this patient with new-onset dyspnea and a history of neuroendocrine tumors. First, anytime someone with an oncological history presents with shortness of breath, I always get concerned about pulmonary embolism given the increased risk of thromboembolism in patients with malignancy. However, she doesn't seem to have signs of an acute venous thromboembolism, and this has been going on for quite a bit, a little bit longer than what I would typically expect for an acute process. I would also be concerned about possible metastases to the lungs that could be causing obstruction or disruption of airflow. The chest x-ray doesn't show consolidation, so this may be less of a concern. Given her age, and given that this is a cardiology podcast, you always have to be concerned about obstructive coronary atherosclerosis causing her dyspnea. And then you also have to consider a malignant pericardial effusion or constriction given her malignancy. You definitely could see an elevated GVP like we did on exam. However, there was a lack of Kusumal sign on examination. This is where when you inspire and create negative intrathoracic pressures, instead of having the blood rushing into the right atrium and right ventricle like they usually do, you get blood backing up and causing a rise in the JVP because of decreased right side compliance. This could be a sign of tamponade, constrictive physiology, or even RV failure. But at this point, without the lack of Kusumal signs and no muffled heart sounds on exam, maybe not so much right now. And then lastly, I'm concerned about possibly a primary valvular lesion causing her symptoms. Given the history of neuroendocrine tumor, and particularly her issues with some metastases and progression of growth, there's a high likelihood that she has a form of carcinoid heart disease that's causing a disruption of her valve architecture. Carcinoid heart disease is usually more likely when the NT pro BNP is above 260 nanograms per milliliter, or when the urinary 5-HIAA is above 300 millimoles over 24 hours. I think the best thing to start with in the workup of this patient's dyspnea would be a transthoracic echo to evaluate for pericardial disease, regional wall motion, and valvular function. Angel, I just have to say that was just a really stellar and a model example of the approach to differential diagnosis, taking patient specifics into account. One, you know, taking into account her history of a carcinoid tumor, but then also recognizing that the prevalence of cardiovascular disease is extraordinarily high in the patient populations that are presented on a cardiology podcast. So bravo. And in addition to that, you know, when we think about cardiovascular disease and pathophysiology coming from the heart, we, we love framing the differential diagnosis within the five failures. So we have coronary failure, myocardial failure, valvular failure, electrical failure, and pericardial failure, and really sort of went through all of these, again, not in general, but specific to the patient. So fantastic job. 
Yeah, and I just add, like, I loved how you put carcinoid syndrome and valvular disease last on your differential. And not because it's necessarily last on your differential for this particular patient, but because you're highlighting that you need to think about your patient broadly. This isn't a board question setting you up for carcinoid syndrome, talking about a patient with previous carcinoid syndrome now coming in with heart failure, and the answer is going to be carcinoid syndrome. That's not how it works in real life. As we know, not all patients follow the books. And to have this systematic way of going through your patient and thinking about them, whether it's using the five failures or whether it's going through a differential diagnosis for any patient with this, is just absolutely critical and definitely life-saving. So kudos on that, especially discussing tempanide, which would be more concerning and something more urgently needing to be addressed. So that was a pleasure to listen to. Thanks so much, Cardio Nerds. I'm glad this isn't a video conference or else you'd see me blushing. Such a dork. I love it. (laughs) So speaking of carcinoid valve disease, Anshul, can you tell us what it's all about? Definitely. So as Michelle said earlier, neuroendocrine tumors can cause heart disease because when there are liver metastases, these tumors secrete the vasoactive compounds like serotonin and bradykinin directly into the systemic circulation, which allows them to bypass the liver metabolism. This not only leads to the carcinoid syndrome, but also can cause changes to heart valves. This is because the valves have receptors for serotonin and all these other vasoactive compounds that when they hit the valve, these receptors get activated. It then upregulates inflammatory cytokines and fibroblast activation, which over time causes fibrosis and retraction of the valves, which ultimately leads to valvular regurgitation. Whoa, that is some crazy physiology. Come on now, don't keep us waiting. Tell us what was on the echo. Coming right up. So the transthoracic echo showed overall normal left ventricular systolic function with an injection fraction of 55%. The right ventricle was moderately dilated with normal systolic function, and the right atrium was severely dilated. The tricuspid valve leaflets were thickened, calcified, and retracted. There was central mouth coaptation of the leaflets causing severe central tricuspid regurgitation as seen on color and spectral Doppler. The pulmonic mitral and aortic valves looked okay overall. Thanks so much, Julia, for walking us through that echo. Those look like classic signs of carcinoid heart disease with the fibrosis and retracted leaflets causing regurgitation. But something I can't stop thinking about is, why only the tricuspid valve? Great question, Anshul. If you remember from earlier, once you get liver metastases, the tumors that secrete serotonin and other vasoactive substances now have a direct route to the heart in right-sided valves via the IVC. These compounds can metabolize into a less reactive form by an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. And this enzyme actually hangs out in a bunch of places such as the liver and also the lungs. This is very important because these substances basically get degraded in the lungs so that by the time blood gets to the left-sided chambers of the heart, they're essentially inactive. And they're not able to cause the same inflammatory reaction with the mitral and aortic valves. So classically, the tricuspid and pulmonary valves are the most affected with the echo showing thickening and retracted valves that lead to worsening regurgitation over time and eventually right heart failure. Oh yes, it's all coming back to me now. My mind is basically sitting in the ocean getting hit with wave after wave of information about carcinoid heart disease. It's also important to note, Michelle, that left side heart valves can be affected, but only in instances of high tumor burden, pulmonary metastases, or with a pain foramen ovale or atrial septal defect. That is correct. Also, don't forget, if you can't get a look at the valves with a transthoracic echo, you can also consider doing a TEE or a cardiac MRI for better evaluation. This is all great learning, guys, but what do we do to treat it? Yulia, hold your horses. I was getting there in a second. Were you? I feel like you are just daydreaming about how many more hot dogs you were going to eat. I will neither confirm nor deny that story. 
But getting back to Julio's question, there are a lot of important things to consider when treating carcinoid heart disease. First off, you have to treat the underlying tumor aggressively. This is where it's important to have a close relationship with your oncology friends so that it can help you out. The first line of treatment is somatostatin and its analogs. This is because they can bind to the tumor and inhibit further secretion of serotonin. This helps to treat the symptoms and slow tumor growth. After that, modalities such as chemotherapy, surgical resection, and embolization can be and typically used in more aggressive disease. Oh, okay. But didn't we come to Fenway Park to discuss carcinoid heart disease? What do we do about that? Right you are, Yulia. And this is where management can get tricky. Since it is a rare disease, the data that we have is limited. But there are some mainstays of treatment that apply to every patient with carcinoid heart disease. First, you want to control the symptoms of the heart disease, which mainly centers around volume given the valvular regurgitation. The first line of medications consists of diuretics like our old friend, furosemide. Ah, me and furosemide have had great times together. (laughs) Don't make this awkward. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. I also have been always tempted to take furosemide, but I'll never do it because it's not safe. (laughs) Speaking of great times with diuretics, I'd also add uh, mineralocorticoid antagonists, especially spironolactone for right-sided heart lesions. Just tend to have a lot of efficacy here in terms of like the splenchnic fluid overload. Thanks so much. Diuretics like furosemide and spironolactone are really mainstays of treatment. And hopefully we can get over how awkward Michelle just made this. But anyway, you try to make medically manage these patients as best you can with diuretics, always being mindful not to volume deplete these patients too much. If their symptoms are stable, you can get by with these patients with just medical management and close clinical follow-up with serial echocardiograms. However, over time, the regurgitation can process to the point that patients start to have worsening symptoms despite medical therapy and have progressive dilatation of the right ventricle and declining function. Once you get to this point, you really have to start thinking about intervening on the valve. And that's when it's time to call in our surgical colleagues. When you're thinking about replacing the valve and specifically surgery, there are a lot of things to take into consideration. First, you need to think about what type of valve you're going to put in. A mechanical valve is tricky because the chronic long-term anticoagulation of Coumadin can be risky, given that many of these patients will have liver dysfunction. In addition, they're usually going through a lot of other procedures which may require frequent interruptions in anticoagulation. Because of all of this, we prefer a bioprosthetic valve most of the time. However, before you put in a bioprosthetic valve, you have to have the malignancy under good control or else the 5-HT can cause degradation of the bioprosthetic valve over time, just like it did with the native valves. Oh yeah, last thing you want is the new valve to be worn out really quickly. Yep, and when you finally decide to proceed with surgery, you have to do a lot of preparation. Usually patients are admitted a day or two earlier to be started on an optreotide drip because when these patients get to the operating room, the stress of the surgery and anesthesia can cause the neuroendocrine tumor to go haywire and start secreting a ton of serotonin and eventually lead to a carcinoid crisis, which consists of hypotension, bronchoconstriction, cardiac arrhythmias, and facial hyperemia. The octreotide drip is continued throughout the surgery and post-op. Sometimes they have to get additional boluses of octreotide while on the drip. This really highlights the importance of a multidisciplinary approach to the valve surgery in these cases with cardiology, oncology, surgery, and anesthesia. Good thing we have such a good collaboration with all these specialties because this is definitely a complicated disease and requires a lot of minds being put together to tackle it. Absolutely. So getting back to our patient, we started her on furosemide with improvement in her symptoms, and our plan is to continue to follow her closely in cardiology and oncology clinic. She's currently on a somatostatin analog, but unfortunately has had some progression of her tumor, so she's currently on a trial regimen of chemotherapy. 
we're going to hold off on valve replacement as long as we possibly can to allow for oncology to control the disease before thinking about replacing the valve. Guys, I'm so glad you brought this case. Of course, carcinoid heart disease predominantly affects the right-sided heart valves, as you outlined, in the absence of a shunt physiology or pulmonary involvement. But it's such a great example of primary disease affecting the tricuspid valve, which is a valve that I personally find very challenging when I take care of patients with tricuspid regurgitation, because oftentimes the symptoms that patients develop over time with TR are vague. And by the time you really are fixated on it, there's already been tremendous downstream effects in terms of RV dysfunction from chronic volume overload and or and organ dysfunction from congestive hepatopathy, which may progress to cirrhosis and or kidney dysfunction, which can progress to advanced stages of CKD. So oftentimes, by the time you're ready to treat the TR, there are other downstream effects that end up co-opting the overall morbidity and mortality for that patient. And just stepping back, the causes of TR overwhelmingly, 90% or so, are secondary to RV dysfunction from volume overload, pressure overload, and or primary myocardial disease with annular dilation and increased tethering forces and or right atrial disease and dilation from atrial fibrillation or the atrial functional TR. And this is a case where it's not secondary or functional TR. This is an example of primary TR, which can occur for a variety of reasons, like radiation heart disease, rheumatic heart disease, endocarditis, Epstein's anomaly, and in this case, carcinoid heart disease. And so in this situation, I think it's just so beautifully outlined the need for a potential need for a structural intervention if there's worsening symptoms that are not responding to medical management and or there is evidence of worsening downstream effects that can essentially take over the morbidity and mortality, whether or not you fix the valve. And so just a great example of the approach to a very specific cause of primary TR in a disease process, specifically TR, that ends up being clinically difficult to manage and approach overall. Really glad that we went over this. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ahmed, for that overview of TR and the different causes of tricuspid regurgitation. And I think this case also highlights, given that she had primarily tricuspid regurgitation, it also kind of circling back explains why she may not have had bendopnea during her initial presentation, because bendopnea typically is a reflection of elevated wedge pressures. And since this lesion is primarily right-sided, we will not typically see the elevated wedge pressures and the bendopnea associated with a tricuspid-only lesion. You know, that's fantastic. And this is a great overview of carcinoid and a deep dive into carcinoid, I should say. And then also with a focus on the tricuspid valve, you know, and this patient didn't come in with bendopnea. This problem is more of a right-sided problem secondary to the carcinoid affecting the tricuspid valve. And again, folks, you definitely want to check out these images on the blog. It's very enlightening to see that discordance between the RV and RA size when you compare it to the LA and LV size. And it really helps us identify the break in this system that's causing her to have these symptoms. And remember, patients with RV dysfunction or patients with severe tricuspid regurgitation can present with shortness of breath. It's not always directly related to the wedge. It could be a little bit more complicated. And, you know, we're maybe not getting that adequate amount of flow from the RV to the LV to pump to the body. And that may be represented as the patient having shortness of breath just by not getting that adequate cardiac output for what they require. So it's definitely very interesting to always put the patient's symptoms onto the etiology of the cardiac dysfunction. And you guys did such a great job. And it was just, it's been such a pleasure to see how you guys localized the issue with this particular patient and then attacked it to improve the patient's symptoms. 
Yeah, and you know, this is, can be such a challenging disease just to diagnose to begin with, right? Because a small minority of the population will get neuroendocrine tumors. A minority of those patients will have functional carcinoid syndrome with, you know, with vasoactive substances that will cause this triad of bronchospasm and flushing and diarrhea. And then a smaller proportion of those patients will actually get carcinoid heart disease with valvular dysfunctions, heart failures, and arrhythmia. You know, just reading up about this before this discussion, a really important biomarker in evaluating patients with carcinoid syndrome is the NT-proBNP. And the NT-proBNP with a cutoff of 260 picograms per millimeter has 92% and 91% sensitivity and specificity for detecting either the presence of or the progression to carcinoid heart disease. And so this patient's NT-proBNP was 313. And within that context of having neuroendocrine tumor with carcinoid syndrome in the background is just a really important tip-off and something that I honestly don't think of very often in my own practice. And I'll just add that we have to remember that the tricuspid valve is the one that's more evolved with carcinoid syndrome. But as we talked about earlier, the milieu of those neuroendocrine tumors washing over the pulmonic valve as well. And so that could be involved. And so you want to have a good look on your echo. And sometimes the TTE, the transthoracic echo, gives you a better picture of that pulmonic valve. So especially if you're going to be doing surgery to fix the tricuspid valve, you may want to assess that pulmonic valve before you do so, just to make sure that's not involved in contributing to the patient's symptoms. Yeah, and just because of the challenges in imaging the right side of the heart in general, and then the pulmonic valve in particular, there's also been work to evaluate a gated cardiac CT and cardiac MRI for a better assessment of these lesions as well. So we have a lot of tools in our toolkit that can be used to evaluate these patients and surveil them in the long term. So this patient, thankfully, has had a very nice course under great care. Anshul, you were going to give us a few high-yield takeaways. Definitely. So in this case, we learned a lot. But just to highlight some important things is, one, carcinoid heart disease typically affects the right side heart valves and is characterized by fibrosis due to the secretion of inflammatory markers by the primary tumors. And two, these are the very classic echo findings, which include fibrose and retracted valve leaflets leading to valvular regurgitation, and that this is primarily on the right side due to the ability of monoamine oxidase to metabolize these vasoactive compounds in the lungs before it reaches the left side heart valves. But that doesn't mean that you can't have left side involvement when you have things such as a PFO, ASD, or pulmonary METs. And that three, management really consists of symptomatic management of the heart failure with our old friends, furosemide and spironolactone and other diuretics. However, if patients are developing progressive symptoms or showing signs of right ventricular decline or dilatation, really you should be thinking about surgical intervention on that valve. And that four, valve replacement really requires a multidisciplinary approach because these patients are very complex and will require a lot of pre-op evaluations and a lot of care during the actual operation and post-op to make sure that they are able to get the valve intervention safely. Thanks, Anshul. That's actually a wrap for our case. Maybe next time we'll see you guys at Fallon Hall to discuss another case. I'll be there for sure. You guys are on. We're definitely you better, dead. better bring us with you guys because uh, we can't. Uh, we're gonna have so much FOMO. It's ridiculous. <laughs> That's fear of missing out for anybody who doesn't know what FOMO is. You guys are such a fun group, and you selected such an incredible case that really highlights so many aspects, right? I mean, from listening to the patient at the bedside with your symptoms and a detailed physical exam taking together their entire history to develop a pristine differential diagnosis. You, know, you modeled really incredible clinical reasoning. And then using a multi-modality diagnostics with imaging and understanding their carcinoid heart disease syndrome in the past, 
and taking a heart team approach with the oncologist and the surgeon, the heart failure attending, the cardiovascular imager to really develop such a great trajectory for this patient. So I'd love to hear from you guys, what attracted you to cardiology? What do you love about cardiology? And what was it that brought you to Boston University to train for cardiology? I was initially attracted to Boston Medical Center for my training for the diverse patient population that it serves. It has helped me develop my creativity for addressing the unique challenges that our patients face. The reason I wanted to stay at Boston Medical Center to continue my training for cardiology fellowship is because of the incredible co-residents and fellows and faculty that I met. I feel that they are all committed to my training and helping me to succeed. I'm especially inspired by the impressive women in cardiology presence. I wouldn't have done it any differently. What drew me to Boston Medical Center was that we are a hospital that is committed to the mission of serving the healthcare needs of the underserved in our population. This is combined with world-class teaching and training by our amazing faculty and staff. We as fellows are always just so impressed by the collegiality of our department and the passion that our attendings have to see us succeed. I came to BNC for residency and have been so blown away by the training and relationships that I have formed here over the years. I think that is a huge reason as to why once people come to BMC, they really do stay for life. I decided to go into cardiology after growing up in a country, Haiti, where there are a handful of cardiologists for a population of nearly 14 million. A lot of different types of cardiomyopathies from a postpartum cardiomyopathy, cardiac amyloidosis, and other forms of cardiomyopathies that remain undiagnosed and poorly treated due to the lack of structure and resources. Boston Medical Center offered me a unique mentorship opportunity to help me cultivate and grow my interest in global cardiovascular health and also allows me to be involved in Haiti while completing my cardiovascular training. Boston Medical Center mission to serve the underserved as the largest safety net and trauma hospital in New England is why I made the initial decision to come to Boston. Combined with a great clinical training, I would choose BMC all over again. Guys, I'm really speechless. We do these recordings. We love doing these recordings. But when we have people come on the show like you guys with such an A game and such a love for cardiology and such a devotion to patient care like you do and also a love from your institution, this is just such a pleasure. You have to see Amin and I are just chatting so excitedly. The energy is electrifying. And going through this case with you has been such an absolute pleasure. And we are definitely coming back as soon as possible. So guys, thank you so much for joining the show. And thank you so much for joining the Cardio Nerds family. No, and thank you for allowing us to be part of this great project. I know here at Boston Medical Center, a lot of us are cardio nerds in both the way we practice and also how often we listen to this podcast and how we're continually learning from your guys' podcast and your energy and devotion to the field of cardiology. So thank you again. And we really appreciate this project that you've undertaken. To learn more about carcinoid heart disease and the different treatments and ways you monitor it is our program director, Dr. Omar Siddiqui, or as we call him, Omar, because he is just so great. He is a person who is always there for our fellows and always willing to take the time to teach us and educate us and is honestly one of the most devoted people I've ever seen in the field of cardiology. So Omar, take it away. Hi, everybody. My name is Omar Siddiqui, and I'm a cardiologist at Boston Medical Center. I attend in the cardio-oncology clinic and at the Boston University Amyloidosis Center. I'm also the program director of the cardiology fellowship at Boston Medical Center. Before we get started with our discussion today, I would like to thank the entire CardioNerds team for this awesome initiative. It has been a true pleasure to get to know cardiology fellows and cardiology programs from across the country. You all have just heard an insightful discussion by three of our amazing fellows at Boston Medical Center on carcinoid heart disease based on a patient from our cardio-oncology clinic. 
I wanted to thank our patient for consenting to have her story shared with the cardiology and medicine communities in general in the hopes that generations of cardiologists and clinicians may learn from her condition. We're really grateful to her for her generosity. So in the next few minutes, I will add a few practical considerations to the care of patients with carcinoid heart disease on top of what you guys have already heard. So as you have heard, carcinoid heart disease is a cardiac manifestation of carcinoid syndrome. Carcinoid syndrome is caused by vasoactive substances produced by neuroendocrine tumors, most commonly those located in the small intestine with liver or pulmonary met. Carcinoid syndrome is essentially a function of altered tryptophan handling. So ordinarily, less than 1% of dietary tryptophan is converted to serotonin. But in contrast, neuroendocrine tumors contain enzymes such as tryptophan hydroxylase and amino acid decarboxylase, and these enzymes are instrumental in converting tryptophan to serotonin. There are also other metabolites that are produced, including other vasoactive substances such as histamine, dopamine, and bradykinin. So the serotonin is usually metabolized by monamine oxidases in the liver and lungs, but this process can be bypassed in the presence of liver and pulmonary mets, resulting in higher circulating levels of serotonin. The most common manifestation of high circulating serotonin is carcinoid valvular disease, exemplified by tricuspid pulmonic valve disease, as so beautifully described just now by Drs. Mintz, Shirvastava, and Ibrahim. So in addition to what our fellows talked about, I'd like to point out a few more less common manifestations of carcinoid heart disease. And this list is actually reminiscent of the five failures that the CardioNerge team likes to talk about. So in addition to valve failure, we have coronary artery failure. In the setting of endothelial dysfunction, most often due to atherosclerosis, high circulating serotonin levels can result in coronary artery vasospasm, which may present as acute coronary syndrome. We can also have ventricular or pump failure. And this often occurs in the setting of high tumor burden, and it doesn't correlate with valvular disease. High tumor burden results in neuroendocrine tumors infiltrating the myocardium. And this can be manifest as multiple cardiac tumors or solitary, well-circumscribed cardiac tumors in the atria or ventricles, often associated with the atrial septum or the ventricular septum. And in fact, you might remember that the Duke University cardiology team, in discussing their case of a hereditary restrictive cardiomyopathy, actually included carcinoid heart disease as being on the differential for, for an infiltrative cardiomyopathy. In this case, when you suspect an infiltrative cardiomyopathy due to carcinoid disease, a PET-CT may actually be more useful for um, assessment instead of an echo. We can also get electrical failure. Atrial and ventricular arrhythmias may occur due to sympathetic nervous system activation by circulating vasoactive substances. So next, I'd like to talk about some practical tips for managing these patients in cardio-oncology clinic. So since carcinoid heart disease is a progressive disease, which leads to worsening valvular regurgitation and right heart dysfunction often, early diagnosis and management are key. Screening for carcinoid heart disease is indicated in all patients diagnosed with carcinoid syndrome. Routine surveillance is especially important in those patients with persistently high circulating serotonin levels. So we use several biomarkers to actually help us assess for the presence of carcinoid heart disease. Persistently elevated 24-hour urine levels of the serotonin metabolite 5-HIAA at a level of more than 300 micromoles per 24 hours may be instrumental for surveillance. 
In addition, there are other biomarkers such as chromogranin A. This is a tumor marker produced by neuroendocrine tumors, and it may be useful for longitudinal surveillance as high levels indicate patients at risk for carcinoid heart disease. And finally, trends in the serum levels of NT-proBNP may actually be predictive of cardiac involvement as well. And NT-proBNP is actually used for yearly surveillance in patients with carcinoid syndrome. In terms of imaging modalities, as you might imagine, echocardiography is the screening imaging modality of choice, and it's obtained in all patients at diagnosis of carcinoid syndrome, and often yearly thereafter, especially in patients who are at risk for carcinoid heart disease. And these are patients who may have high circulating serotonin levels, whose disease may be less well controlled. When getting an echo, it is imperative to do a detailed assessment of all four valves for carcinoid involvement, um, especially in the setting of a PF4 ASD. If transthoracic images are limited, sometimes a transesophageal echo may actually be instrumental in helping us assess all four valves. Additional cardiac imaging, such as cardiac MRI, may also be helpful in assessing the myocardium for carcinoid infiltration. And in addition, cardiac MRI may also help assess RV size and the degree of uh, tricuspid regurgitation and pulmonary regurgitation. And so cardiac MRI is often used for uh, perioperative planning. Let's say a few words about treatment now. So in patients with severe tricuspid regurgitation and or pulmonary valve disease, surgical valve replacement is definitive therapy. There are a few things you need to keep in mind with regards to the timing of surgery. As much as possible, control of the underlying neuroendocrine tumor and reduction in circulating serotonin levels is important before proceeding with surgery. And this is really for two reasons. Patients with carcinoid syndrome are at risk for a perioperative carcinoid crisis caused by a stress-induced release of serotonin and other vasoactive substances from the tumor. Perioperative care often involves admitting these patients 12 to 24 hours prior to surgery for IV therapy with somatostatin analogs that we've heard about, such as octreotide, to reduce circulating serotonin levels. Secondly, patients with high circulating serotonin levels are at risk for serotonin valvulopathy involving bioprosthetic valves after valve surgery. So one way around this is to implant mechanical valves. Mechanical valves may be considered for patients with uncontrolled carcinoid syndrome, but the risk of lifelong anticoagulation may be significant. Finally, there are mimics of carcinoid heart disease. Iatrogenic mimics include medications such as the weight loss pill Fenfen, Fenfluramine, Fentramine, Pergolide for Parkinson's disease, ergot derivatives. All these medications may cause a valvulopathy that's reminiscent of carcinoid heart disease. Uh, but unlike carcinoid heart disease, these valvulopathies often affect both the right and left-sided valves. Pulmonary hypertension may also occur in this setting. So I want to leave you with this message. The effective care of patients with carcinoid heart disease requires a collaborative, multidisciplinary effort involving oncologists, cardio-oncology specialists, cardiac imagers, cardiac anesthesiologists, and cardiac surgeons. Perioperative planning and control of circulating serotonin levels is key to prevent a carcinoid crisis and to prevent serotonin valvulopathy of bioprosthetic valves. So thank you again for inviting us to share this case with all of you and also for inviting us to share our program and our amazing cardiology fellows. Thank you. And now for a message from our associate program director, Dr. Katie Boxall, who as one of our newer attendings has quickly devoted herself to the training and education of cardiology fellows here at Boston Medical Center. And here she is to explain a little bit more about what makes BMC so great to train. Cardio nerds, thank you for having us. 
You just heard from our cardio-oncology expert, Dr. Omar Siddiqui. Thank you to Anshul, Yulia, and Michelle for such a wonderful job presenting this case and for telling us a little bit about why you love training at BU and working at Boston Medical Center. My name's Katie Boxtall. I'm an Associate Program Director for our Cardiology Fellowship Program and have the privilege of working with Dr. Siddiqui, our Cardiology Fellowship Program Director, and Dr. Rick Ruberg, formerly our Program Director and currently an Associate Program Director with me. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to tell you about the Cardiovascular Medicine Fellowship Training Program at Boston University today, and I'd like to highlight the top five points that really make this an incredible program. First, when I think about working at Boston Medical Center, I think about our motto of exceptional care without exception. Boston Medical Center is the primary teaching hospital for Boston University School of Medicine and the primary training hospital for our fellows. BMC is the largest safety net hospital in New England and draws an incredibly diverse patient population from all over the region and the world. The physicians and trainees that choose to come to Boston Medical Center are truly dedicated to the mission, and it's inspiring to work with them. For these reasons, diversity and inclusion has always been at the core of our program. It's very important that the composition of our fellowship reflects the patients that we take care of. We're proud to have about 50% women and 20% traditionally underrepresented groups in our fellowship program and have fellows join us from all over the country and really from all over the world. Second, individualized mentorship is central to our program. It's our priority to make sure that each fellow gets what they want out of training and feels supported in pursuing their chosen career path through close mentoring beginning in the first year of fellowship. We have a strong track record in research training and research mentoring at BU, drawing from a wealth of research opportunities through Boston University, home of the Framingham Heart Study. This includes mentored research opportunities funded by T32 grants through the Whitaker Cardiovascular Institute and Framingham Heart Study, and many of our fellows have built successful research careers through this pathway. Third, fellows leave BU as very strong clinicians. Our fellows receive a really outstanding clinical training, and this goes back to our patients. We have the privilege of caring for a socioeconomically and ethnically diverse patient population that brings a breadth of cases to Boston Medical Center. BMC is a busy hospital, and this volume lends itself to excellent training from the non-invasive labs to the procedural space. Our fellows have a high degree of autonomy and independence, always with an appropriate amount of support. We have a very collegial and friendly environment to work in, where faculty and fellows really work together as colleagues. Fourth, BU's location in the city of Boston is a real asset. Boston is a beautiful city with amazing culture, arts, restaurants, sports, and outdoor activities. The medical campus is located in the historic South End, one of the most vibrant neighborhoods of the city. Not only is Boston a wonderful place to live, but the proximity of all the major academic centers in Boston has created the academic collaborative environment that the city is known for. This brings opportunities for collaborative research across institutions and additional training, including away rotations tailored to a fellow's particular area of interest. Finally, the common thread running through all these points is the people. At BU, you're working with people dedicated to our mission of exceptional care without exception and dedicated to fellow mentorship and career development in an extremely collegial, collaborative, and supportive environment. The faculty, 
fellows, all members of the care team, and everyone in our BU family are what makes our program really special. Cardio Nerds, thank you again for having us. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, read and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Boop. Boop.